It's time to uh, to talk to Ian Dunt. Ian, of course, is a columnist with the Eye newspaper and he's back for his fortnightly foray into the sordid world of his increasingly uninhabitable homeland. So, Ian, I understand that uh, Ricky Sunak has been forced to do a bit of reshuffling and hasn't very good cards to play. No, not at all. I mean, it was an extremely technocratic reshuffle where he basically sort of stitched together bits of various departments. And all of it perfectly sensible, but sort of baffling as to why you would be doing this right now, 18 months ahead of a general election, when the results won't be felt until afterwards. And yet there was one really noticeable addition, which is a man called Lee Anderson. Lee Anderson is by some considerable distance, uh, the most moronic and intellectually subpar uh, MP in the House of Commons. I mean, I, I literally had to say him on two occasions when asked who the worst MP was. I said, well, it's, it's got to be Lee Anson, just in terms of his performative meanness and fundamental inability to understand even very simple political issues. So naturally, he has now been made the vice chair of the Conservative Party, put about as high as you can go in the hierarchy of the governing party. This is done as a sort of sop to the reactionary wing of the party. Anderson's views, I mean, bringing back the death penalty, setting up work camps for welfare claimants. There's a wonderful TV interview, which you can Google with a man called Michael Crick during the election campaign, where he's sort of taken, he he takes the journalist along on a door knocking campaign, you know, meeting voters, except buffoon that he is, he leaves his mic on and then goes off to make a phone call. And you can see him calling up the man he is about to knock on the door of and pretend he has no idea who he is, which is a friend (laughs) of his saying, act like you don't know who I am, but that you're going to vote for me anyway. They go to the door and knock on it. And the man spends most of the time talking about how he wants to whip criminals and and blah, blah, blah. He is really a tremendously, a tremendously unskilled politician and, of course, is now at the upper echelons of our political life. I understand that he once claimed that people could make a meal for 30p. Yes, I mean, it's staggering. But part of his campaign, it's almost like he's mathematically devised the least popular thing to say. So he decided to attack nurses who had to use food banks. The reason that nurses are being forced to use food banks, of course, is because they receive very little play and we're in an inflationary crisis. And his response was simply to attack them for not knowing how to cook properly and saying, well, if you, know, if you think about it, you can actually cook a meal for 30p. He then tried to substantiate this line of argument by taking a photo of one of his female members of staff and saying she's single and she has a very low income and she still manages to have a house and pay herself. And you sort of think like, well, I mean, even if you asked her permission to do this, it's a pretty shoddy way to bet, talk about her relationship status and her income. And also, you are responsible for the income. <laughs> so, you know, you could be paying her more. On those, he, he is a quite spectacularly foolish man. And yet what has followed from his elevation is this, you know, on the one hand, you look at it and you think, well, this is why Britain is simply no longer a serious country if this is the kind of person that succeeds. And yet it's actually worse than that. He doesn't succeed despite the fact that he is stupid. He succeeds because he is stupid. It is his stupidity, this performative stupidity, that actually gets him the press attention. That means he's talked about on social media, that gets him interviews on television. That then raises his 
the, the extent to which he's seen in our political life, and suddenly he becomes talismanic for this whole wing of, of the party that wants to bring back hanging and all of that sort of thing, and he gets to the position. So really he acts as this sort of fail-safe argument for why this country is degenerating quite so quickly in its public and its social life. Deputy PM Dominic Rapp, he survived. Well, he's surviving so far. I mean, we, we've still got another few more weeks of the inquiry into him to go. We still, uh, they keep on telling us it's more weeks to go, of these repeated allegations of bullying of predominantly civil service staff. Um, he, he managed to you know, survive in the reshuffle, which again sort of questions why Sunak did it in the first place. Because if Rob has to go, which most people expect he will, you would then have to have another reshuffle just to sort of put someone in, in his job. It has to be said as well for Rob that the bullying is obviously very, very bad. But it is extraordinary that all of the focus is on that rather than the fact that he has proved completely unable to do his job. This is a man who, uh, he was foreign secretary when the evacuation from Afghanistan took place. He was, at the point that the evacuation took place, uh, at the point that Kabul fell, despite weeks of warnings that this was about to take place, he was on the beach on holiday. He'd had one meeting in the preceding month with an international figure to address the issue. When it came down to the evacuation, the emergency team were trying to send him names of people that they were desperately trying to get out, people who had helped Britain during the war and were at risk of being murdered by the Taliban. He went completely silent for hours on end and then responded to them saying that they hadn't formatted the table correctly. They needed to reformat the table with the names so that he could make the assessment. And in that period, many people were not evacuated who might otherwise have been saved from the hands of the Taliban. So given his track record, and that's just one example, I mean, we could give you dozens of his complete inability to do the job. It's extraordinary that it's only now that we're questioning whether he should be in the position when in any sane society he would have been gotten rid of at least two years ago. Brexit regret dividing the parliament after a number of government and opposition MPs attended a summit on the, quote, shortcomings of the UK's departure. Yeah, this is interesting. I mean, it really feels like something's shifting at quite high levels now. So figures like Michael Gove, who is in government, the minister, he was absolutely central alongside Boris Johnson to the Leave campaign, meeting up with really strong Remainers like David Lammy, um, Shadow, Secretary, Shadow Foreign Secretary for Labour, who was a very, very strong on Remain. I mean, this is a guy who came out after the referendum result and went, we don't even need another referendum to overturn it, let's just not do it. Um, they're now meeting up, seemingly in secret, to discuss, well, what kind of common cause is there? What can we do to alleviate the kind of damage that we're seeing? And this has, of course, triggered a flurry of very hysterical coverage in, in the right-wing tabloids, as you would imagine. But that general sense of from the lowest level to the highest level, this pervasive sense of this is not working, part of the economic punishment that we are feeling is as a result of Brexit. And this inexorable turn in the narrative towards Brexit being A, a bad thing, and B, something that must be fixed, which is, of course, a million miles away from the sort of messianic, almost millennialist promises that were made at the time of this is the project that will fix all the country's problems. And this has provoked you into saying that Brexit has to join the great pantheon of catastrophic British errors alongside the Iraq war and the Suez crisis. Yeah, I mean, there's no other way to, to put it at this stage, really. It's... It, it, you know, the damage is obvious in terms of, we now have a very, we have a very clear idea in terms of productivity, in terms of investment, in terms of trade, we are taking damage. But the damage, I think, is even more severe than that, because 
the greatest thing it did to us was distraction. You know, you look at the country now, and there are so many deep-seated, pervasive problems. You know, when you, if you look at social care, if you look at housing, if you look at regional inequality, if you look at climate change, we have addressed none of these things for years on end now, for over half a decade, because of this focus on a project which could only ever do us harm. You know, which in its very best case scenario was a damage limitation exercise. And essentially, this is the victory of right-wing identity politics over any kind of empirical analysis of what a country might need. So the damage is absolutely unbelievable. When you look, you look at the state now, you look at, for instance, the arguments between the EU and the US on subsidies for green energy. Once upon a time, not so long ago, Britain would have had a very prominent role in that discussion. You know, it was the bridge between the US and Europe. It was involved in those discussions. Now... We just look from outside, sort of wondering which of the great trading giants will win and whether that will happen to be in our favour. And what that is, it happens so fast over really just five, six, seven years, is a significant downgrading in the country's status, self-imposed. It's very likely that the Conservatives will lose the next election. How's Labour going? Is it winning over the business sector? It is. I mean, so this morning, the former uh, CBI chief, the Confederation of British Industry chief, Paul Dreschler, came out and basically said, look, it, you know, business people just need to go start talking to Labour now. I mean, we know which way it's going. They're sensible people. We need to just start making the shift. That's a pretty decisive moment. Whenever you see that movement of business, business is quite small, C conservative. It doesn't really want to mess around, doesn't want to rot the boat too much. It'll start making the overtures, making the conversations when it sees which way the wind is blowing. And they've seen which way the wind is blowing. I mean, last week we had uh, an MRP poll. That's MRP is multi-level regression and pro-stratification analysis, which essentially takes demographic elements of the population and inputs them into a polling mechanism. It's profound, I mean, almost like witchcraft in terms of the accuracy with which it predicts results. I mean, it puts the Tories at the election on 45 seats, going down from 365 seats in 2019. That's an extra, I mean, basically what they're talking about when you look at the polling now is an extinction level event for the Conservative Party. They're talking about having less seats than the Scottish National Party, which was being put on 50. So really at this stage, Many things can change, you know, the polling lead can narrow, Labour isn't complacent, but at the moment you're looking at it and the sense is taking over in Westminster, among journalists, among politicians, among civil servants of this is a thing that is happening now. It looks like the Conservatives are not just going towards defeat, but towards absolutely catastrophic defeat. To uh, end on a cheerful note, tell me about GB News. I thought I did end on a cheerful note talking about an extinction-level event for the Conservatives. <laughs> I don't know how to get any happier than that. Uh, GV News is... Uh, it was set up as a sort of British Fox News attempt and didn't do very well. I mean, the early stages, catastrophic sort of technical inability meant that it just looked like it was being performed by schoolchildren. But then it found a way to secure an audience. And the way it's found is essentially to spread right-wing conspiracy theories, predominantly about covid but also a little bit about Ukraine as a money laundering operation for the Democrat Party in the US, all complete tosh. 
And yet it is able to pump this stuff out without really almost any intervention by Ofcom, the regulator. It's had two small inquiries, but the rest of the time it seems almost completely wrong-footed. The regulator was really set up for a world of quite gentlemanly conduct by the BBC and Sky News, and everyone knew how to do balance and impartiality and objective information, and it didn't have to do much. Now it's being presented with these really upstart tribalist outlets spreading absolute disinformation and it doesn't really seem to know how to deal with it so for the time being at least it's getting away with it but there's now growing pressure to say look Ofcom really needs to get a grip on this stuff and it needs to do it very quickly indeed. Ian thanks for that Ian Dunt columnist with the I newspaper and Ian will be back in a fortnight. Stream any ABC radio station live and on the go Discover new podcasts, music and audiobooks, all free on the ABC Listen app.